Hey everyone, welcome to A Questioning Faith. This is a podcast crafted for us to be able to ask hard questions about our faith, about scripture, about art, about all sorts of things that impact our lives. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and uh, be sure to check out John Fuller's book, Enter Into My Rest. Check it out at www.enterintomyrest.com. Welcome, everybody, to the eighth episode of A Questioning Faith. We are continuing our conversation on what is the Bible and how can it possibly have any impact in our lives. And we're going to explore that today in some fun ways. Uh, We'll get a little sympathy for the devil involved. And we're also going to be talking about the grand narratives of life. So that's where I want to start the conversation off with you three. When you think of meta-narrative or overarching narratives or overarching themes in your life or society, what comes to mind? The one thing that kind of jumped at me today was, well, not just today, but the, the thing that's kind of been appearing to me lately has been this idea of all work being ministry work. Um, I've I've been noticing that over the last 10 years in my life, I've kind of sort of in one way or another gone back and forth between what you would call quote unquote church work and quote unquote real world work. And so this, the, the path that I took was essentially I, after high school, I went to college for a little while in Lincoln and found out quickly that um, classes and a regular schedule like that, where I had to write papers and turn things in as a uh, 18, 19, 20 year old, um, it didn't work for me really well in high school and surprise, surprise, when I got out on my own, it didn't work any better for me when I didn't have anybody telling me, make sure you write the paper. So that, Uh, phase of my life ended and I moved back home to work on the farm for a little while and then went into an internship for in ministry and did some working at a a, a United Methodist summer camp and so there was some ministry work built in there and then the farm work came back And so that felt to me like the real world job. And then I went back and did some other uh, camp jobs and then got invited to move some other to another community. And then uh, I got a job at a cookie store, which doesn't sound like it would be real world work, but I was working with people. So I, I have come to learn that working with people is real world work and you begin to develop a community. Eventually, that led me back into, I got led into going back to school. I, I think I've talked about going to a Christian college. Um, I did that for, I, I think it was just one year. And uh, come to, came to learn that I'm not as, uh, I'm, I'm not conservative. I don't have a conservative theology. I learned that loud and clear at that school. 
Um, and I was doing ministry work. I had ministry jobs to, to make sure that I, you know, made my own car payments and things like that. I, I had jobs that were church work, quote unquote. And I never really categorized that as being real work or real world work. Um, so then I kept going back, back and forth. I did a construction job and then I did some more church jobs. And then I did, uh, I came back, came back up to Northeast Nebraska to work with my family again, to do, you know, real world work with my family farm. And then I kind of came to realize that the farm it needs a community to support it. And so, so does every other business. It needs a community of people to support it, that the community of people has to, has to be behind whatever the mission is that that business might have. Just like a community of people needs to be behind every church or as I've come to realize this week, as I've been drilling down on this thought, is every person needs that community too, to support and be behind their mission and help them figure out what it is. Okay, uh, I've, I'm, I've been growing some microgreens, which are small, small plants, we grow them about two weeks, we we put them on a on a tray of soil. We plant thousands of seeds on a small tray, and we we only grow them grow these plants to be a couple of inches tall. But they're packed with all the same nutrients and everything else as they're full grown. Like the the big broccoli heads, we can grow things that have that same amount of nutrients in two weeks under lights in my basement and away we go. Which is cool if you have a community of people who thinks that growing a bunch of seeds under lights in your basement is a cool way to grow food. And then a bunch of people want to purchase that type of food, that way that food is being grown. If that happens, then all of a sudden I can, I can do that I'm supported. I, you know, there are people that I can get feedback from as far as like, hey, that batch of broccoli, you maybe let it grow a little bit too long before that batch of broccoli microgreens. Maybe we should have cut it a day or two earlier or a day or two later. I can get that feedback to tell me how I can make the community better. Without the community there, though, to support the thing, it doesn't matter. And so the church work and real life work has helped me to see that it's all about the community. It's all about shaping the people around you or helping the people around you to be more on the same page, more headed in the same direction. And, and without those types of things, like it's really easy to fall through the cracks. So Braden, you just offered that story, you offered four or five examples of a meta narrative uh the first one <laughs> uh the, the some first focusing <laughs> well i'll i'll focus it for you because you gave great examples 
the the first one is we are told or there are parts of the United States in which high school students are told if you don't go to college you will never make anything of yourself so even mm-hmm. though you knew that being a student was kind of life sucking my guess is that there was that meta narrative that grand narrative that you could only make something of yourself if you go to college so you go off to college there's another narrative at your second college that there is only one way to be a christian and if you don't sign this belief statement and agree to this doctrine you can't be a christian and we're not going to allow you to be part of the school uh, that's a powerful meta narrative in, in the evangelical community. Uh, the this is a more subtle one, but it's very very evident in your story. I remember growing up, there were there was the phrase "those who can do, those who can't teach, uh, mm-hmm. those who can those who can do, those who can't preach." Like there's there's yeah. valuable work. Uh, being being a a person that can economically move the needle is far more important than a teacher. So you know, teachers are people who can't do anything else. Where did that come from? When the most important people in the world are teachers, <laughs> you know, I don't know where that came from, but man, that was in the air when I was growing up. John, do you remember that? Oh yes, very definitely, most definitely. And then the the final perfect segue, Braden, is you're talking about communities, and what we're talking about today. What I want to explore is how the Bible has shaped communities, how the Bible has shaped our grand narratives, and how it still is doing so. And we are in an era now that many people call the postmodern era. And the postmodern era is defined by the destruction of the meta narratives. The millennial generation, uh, Generation X, the, the boomers to some extent, got fed up with the modern era in which everything was could be scientifically defined. We can find the answers if we just dig deep enough. Science will get us to the truth of everything. We In the modern era, we even scientifically explored the Bible. We can get to the one truth if we specialize in historical criticism, if we get to exactly what was happening at the time that the Bible was written, we can get to the truth that God offers. Well, science flat out destroyed the world in the first half of the 20th century. We got really good at using science to kill people. And then we grew up under the shot, John and I especially grew up under the shadow of a nuclear mushroom cloud. And in John's book, he, he goes into great description, great detail describing how the threat of nuclear holocaust just made life meaningless. 
at any moment in time, Nixon can push the button. You know, he's drinking. He's he's not paying any attention. He doesn't care about us. He's got he's got the keys to the bombs. And we're all going to die. That's in one of John's chapters. That's what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. So that changes in the 60s in a powerful way. The 1960s actually began, postmodernism began at the end of World War II, really, but it exploded in the 60s. And instead of the American dream, which is one of those grand narratives, you just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, and you'll achieve. And there were all, there's this American nationalism, we're all on the team. Well, that is another example of how postmodernism is changing society. It's not about the one national team. It's the recognition that there are all of these communities and that the whole is shaped by the individual communities. We aren't one homogenous country. We are a country filled with micro communities, communities growing micro greens, communities that are based on affinities and healthy lifestyles or, you know, how many, we could come up with a gazillion communities in which give, pe which give people identity. And the, the farmer's market community is one of those communities. So that was great. that was a great, your story was filled with examples of how these narratives shape our lives. And so I want to get to, John, how about uh, anything else you'd like to add as far as narratives go and, and what you've listened to, how has that shaped your thinking this morning? Given that at our last uh, meeting, we discussed using Mick Jagger's song and I was very surprised at what arose in my heart because uh, and when you began the discussion today, Eric, um, it was kind of about, you know, what themes arose. And I remember very distinctly the day that Martin Luther King was shot and also when Bobby Kennedy was shot. And that informed my reality in a tremendous way. I was only seven or eight years old when Martin Luther King was shot. And we lived in a, you know, 99% white community. So we didn't have any other people types there. But I think by the the impact of his assassination led me into what eventually would become involvement in um, race relations. And of course that was enhanced by discovering that I had Indian blood in me. And of course, you know, Indians are treated very poorly so I became a very political animal in my youth. The, um, one of the other things that happened was I began 
becoming involved in American politics, uh, I'm sorry, in um, the environmental politics because as I was looking around me, and I think to a large degree, the 60s began the discussion on environmentalism, even though, you know, the John Muirs of the world had been around for a very, very long time. I think that the 60s really, really um, gave a huge push to that consciousness. So I made several choices as a consequence of that time. One was I chose a minimalist lifestyle, you know, what we would perhaps today call, you know, a zero carbon impact or something like that. Um, I chose poverty because a lot of reasons my heart was corrupt, having grown up in the American society as it was at that time. But also I wanted to have a, an understanding of the disenfranchised in this country and the truly impoverished. It's a hard way of living. It's a very hard choice. But having chosen essentially a path of suffering, um, that was a major element of my life experience. Um, so. So thanks, John. You open up several other meta narratives that have powerfully shaped America, and they come from biblical perspectives or people going to the Bible to prove their perspective. White supremacy. Uh, white supremacy is a very biblical perspective. God says that we should be able to own slaves. And we all know that white people aren't slaves, black people are, or, or other, other colored skin people. People of color. People of color. People of color, right. Uh, if they look different than white people, they're not quite human. The, uh, the myth of American supremacy, that God created America to be a Christian nation, the, the, the new exodus, the exodus out of Egypt was reenacted when America was formed and that we're a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation. That's nonsense. The majority of people in America would probably call themselves Christian, but we were not based on Christian values. Unless you think that a solid Christian value is that Black people are not human or not fully human, that they're only three-fifths human, because our U.S. Constitution says Black people are three-fifths human. May I interrupt for just a second? Yeah, interrupt yeah go for it, John. Tear into it. Well, no, no, I'm loving what you're saying, but I want to give people some kind of a context here. So one of my beloved little children in my life is of Norwegian descent, descendant of Leif Erikson. And I wanted to introduce him to his ethnicity, okay? And so I got what was, as of maybe last year, the most current book on Leif Erikson available on Amazon.com. And it was published in 1968. And again, this is that era. 
This is what it wrote. Leif Erikson was the first human being in North America. What? And I'm an Indian right now. You know what? My claws and fangs are out. Because who could write a sentence like that in 1968? Okay? Woo! <laughs> That's crazy. That is so absolute. I, like, I'm just going to say, from my perspective, that is so ignorant to, to think that, nope, it, nobody stood on this ground until the white guy showed up. B.S. There is carbon dated evidence, but like all the other things that you want to try to say that to date all the Leif Erikson story, if anybody's going to try to say that that's what the real thing was, all that same data exists to disprove that theory. But Braden, there's a, there's a more sinister aspect to this. The guy who wrote that, and I would, I'm assuming it's a guy who wrote that, said that Leif Erikson was the first human because natives aren't human. Uh, yeah, okay, I hear it now, I hear it. I don't yeah, like it anymore, but I hear it. They're, sub, they're subhuman. They're, um, they're um, uh, uh, savages. And, mm. and, and I'm not making that up, right? We've all heard that mm. those people are savages. They're not capable of being white. They're not capable of being civilized. Uh, so these, these narratives uh, are powerful, powerful. Uh, in shaping lives, community, in the world. So I want to get to, uh, Liz, did, I don't want to forget you too. Is there anything else you wanted to share about your narrative or what you've experienced so far in this conversation? In where to, and, and I'm just making sure, but just talking about defining moments in our lives where uh, America kind of helped define or said something great themes that shape our lives, these great themes of, uh, you know, rugged individualism, uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you can only be successful if you have a college education, okay. you know, kind of the mantras that have guided and shaped our lives, that's what a meta-narrative is, okay. a, a, an overarching narrative. Ooh, you're the only one that can give us this perspective, but what, what like expectations or narratives or pressures have you felt around being a mom oh I know yeah exactly well I was gonna I was gonna go a little bit before that but sure yeah, yeah. remembering uh that um I don't know like losing my mom at five years old and then society kind of teaching me how I'm supposed to grow up to be this young lady and that definitely I think was a big one and you have to have this and you have to have that and you have to look like this and so I think maybe a little bit of why I look the way I do is because I was formed by society and a single parent. Um, another thing was being in my 30s and having my grandmother and my dad say, I don't even know if she's going to get married. Like she should have been married by now. Society saying mm -hmm. when you 
finish college, because that's another thing. What are you going to do after high school? You're going to go to college. Well, I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't have uh, whatever parent was supposed to guide me through that. It was just kind of like, oh, now you're done. What are you going to do? Well, I stayed and played for two years at a community college. I played volleyball. Um, and so then go into college because my dad told me to go. That's what you're supposed to do to be successful. And um, that's what you're supposed to do to make something of yourself. You've got to go get a college degree. But I got that and I've never really been doing what my college degree was. Um, and then, yeah, there's a lot of things about uh, being a mom and people telling me, uh, you know, your kids are going to grow up. You better spend as much time as you can. Or when we first had kids, um, this just stressed me out as a new mom. Don't do, listeners don't tell new moms these things. Like don't be jerks and stress. They're pregnant. Like they have hormones, like be intentional. What you tell them, don't tell them. Oh, you better get your rest now because you're not going to be sleeping for you know, <laughs> 18 years. Like, don't say that. Don't say, oh, you're going to try to breastfeed. Like, don't put all this pressure on me. Let me do what the heck I want to do. You know, if I ask you questions, great. Give me your opinion. If I don't like it, I'm going to walk away. Um, but mm. uh, I, there's, yeah, um, this is the way we do it. This is the way it's always been. You know, and as we talked about, I've left several jobs that um, it was, uh, you got to do it yourself. We're not going to support you. If you can't do it, I guess this is too, too much for you. So. Excellent. You brought up some powerful narratives in there. The expectation of women in society, right? When I was, yeah. a, kid, when I was a kid, they taught a woman's place is in the home. Yeah. Well, now at 41, I love it. I love spending time with my kids. But in my 20s and my 30s, I didn't know. So I just worked. I worked and worked and tried to keep up with whatever I was supposed to be doing and, you know, balancing church and, yeah. You know, to, oh, and to give you some idea of the seriousness of that perspective, and since you're a mom by choice, by choice, I regale you for it, hallelujah, because it's a beautiful thing. But when my stepmother tried to get a job, she was a little scared. And I actually uh, heard her express fear over the fact that she was contemplating going into the workforce. It's like, and I had a uh, tough old, well, I shouldn't say old. I had a tough school teacher who was a woman and she and my mom happened to meet socially. And that teacher said to her, you want a job, you get a job. And mm -hmm. mm -hmm. statement. Exactly. So exactly. Well, and John, like, just to add it, just to sprinkle more, Eric, um, with the kids, you know, are you, oh, they go to daycare. Yeah, mm -hmm. they go to daycare. I have to work to support the family, you know, and, and this was a couple months ago. Um, no, I'm not home homeschooling my kids. No, I'm not cleaning my house and being happy mom. Like I can't do, it just doesn't work for me. Some moms, they want to go back to work. Some moms want to stay home and do all kinds of things. Some moms want to homeschool. Great. Whatever brings you joy, but I love working and I love interacting and socializing with people. 
and my kids are getting older and so I'm enjoying it even more. So but and the other the other thing that daycare has provided us oh ama- amazing provided our children yeah is a place to go and socialize immediately with people their age people that and we've got a wonderful daycare provider oh, yeah. it's an in-home daycare so it's not a huge group of kids but goodness gracious that she helped teach our kids how to write their names she how taught to do, us how to like, parent yeah she has been a wonderful guide it has been a wonderful part of our community yeah she's but not our blood that, but she's but part of that yeah. also did come with like there she wasn't throwing a lot of it didn't ever feel like she was throwing a lot of expectations our way as far as this is what i expect your kids to behave like when you when they come to get it was just they're here this is what's going on with them here's what i think would help and yeah. ooh, that was a wonderful thing taking them to daycare was the best thing ever it was skipping so preschool they, they going right into kindergarten so. uh, but that um that daycare probably is uh antithetical to the teachings of focus on the family so if you want to go deep into a, a hardcore Christian meta narrative, the family is biblically inspired to be two white adults. You're not going to have a white person and a black person marrying uh, that are heterosexual and have two children. And the mom stays at home and the dad goes to work. And there's all of these definitions that churches say, this is what it means to be a family. But if we spend any time at all in the Bible, we will see that the the 20th century definition of family that those evangelical groups are proposing has nothing to do with how family is described in the Bible. And the uh, uh, it's another example of how we go to the Bible to look for what we want to believe instead of letting the Bible shape us and open and honestly questioning what we find there. John, you look like you wanted to say something. The only thing that came to my mind was Moses was married to a black woman. <laughs> That's all I was Abraham. Abraham had a, uh, 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 a slave named Hagar with whom he had Ishmael. And Hagar came from Egypt. I would guess that she was black as well. Um, that that is the case throughout throughout the biblical stories. Uh, I mean, we don't. Let's just not even go to the uh, uh, the harems that David and Solomon had. Uh, these epitome of the kings that what the perfect man should be for Israel had dozens and dozens and dozens of wives um, so that wouldn't fall necessarily very kindly into the focus on the family narrative but excellent you guys have you guys have given us great examples so we've been wanting to have a conversation about the lyrics for the rolling stones song sympathy for the devil which mick jagger wrote in 1968 and it's a perfect example of this powerful shift in narratives. Prior to this, prior, 
in the 50s, in the early 60s, the Beatles are singing, I wanna hold your hand, love, love me do. Elvis is singing, he ain't nothing but a hound dog and that's about as risque as it gets. And then something happens in the 60s. There is something in the water. And John, I think race relations have a lot to do with it. Vietnam, everything tonight on the news. Vietnam, how many people were killed? How many people are missing? The worst possible kind of situation. So that is the, that is the environment in which Mick Jagger writes, stuck around St. Petersburg when I saw it was time for a change, killed the czar and his ministers, Anastasia screamed in vain. I rode a, rode a tank, held the general's rank when the blitzkrieg raged and the bodies stank. Pleased to meet you, hope you guessed my name. Oh yeah, ah, what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. I watched with glee while your kings and queens fought for 10 decades for the gods they made. I shouted out who killed the Kennedys when after all, it was you and me. Uh, let's see, let me please introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste and I laid traps for troubadours who get killed before they reach Bombay. Just as every cop is a criminal and all the sinners saints, as heads as tails, just call me Lucifer because I'm in need of some restraint. So Mick Jagger is looking back over the last centuries and pointing a finger at Christianity, pointing a finger at the meta-narratives that have driven society and saying, this, what you all thought was the way that was supposed to be was devil-inspired behavior. So I watched with glee while your kings and queens fought for 10 decades for the gods they made. He's referring to the Hundred Years' War, which was a battle between Protestants and Catholics. And it killed maybe 10 million people over interpretation of the Bible. Over which meta-narrative are we going to follow? The Catholic meta-narrative or the Protestant meta-narrative? 10 million people. If we were to, I don't know how to even begin doing the math, but if we were to look at that as a percentage of the population and compare that to today, it would just, it would make us sick to our stomachs to even contemplate how many people died. And it wasn't at the hands of soldiers. It was from starvation and disease because the soldiers would destroy communities' crops. They'd go in and destroy all of the crops so the people would starve to death in the name of God. And John, you were meditating on the meaning of this and, and um, we're thinking about the Kennedys being assassinated. Um, and well, after all, it was you and me. You know, uh, that I think is perhaps one of the most important lines in the song. And we've discussed this previously, but we are all choosing, let's say, one side or the other every moment of our lives. And I think that particular line is, or should be at least, devastating to people because we are responsible. Every one of us is responsible 
and our behavior either reflects the awareness of that or it just increases it. Yeah. The, it increases the unconsciousness, shall we say. And we are, we are bystanders far more than we are active participants in, in, in the death of the Kennedys or look at that metaphorically. But all of us are bystanders to social injustice. All of us are bystanders to uh, other than a few rare people who make it their lives work to try to stop injustice. There's no trainings on that. We have trainings in schools for shootings. We have trainings for tornadoes, you know, trainings for fire, earthquake. We don't have training for in, um, injustice. Uh, teaching high school kids, teaching other kids. What do you do when you see somebody that's being bullied hurting. in this way? Yeah. Hurting. See, see, the problem is we, we should have had, like, we were doing church right. Yeah. We should have had training for that. Here's an example of what you just said. That's one of the most brilliant statements you just made, Liz. So um, my friend, let's call her Joy, is probably the only black woman in a white county where I lived at one time. And she was the elder sister for the only black student, a little girl, in her community. So Joy would have to go and check up on the school and make sure everything was good with this little girl. And they were studying the racism of the 1960s. And the kids, being kids, took that little girl and stuffed her into, you know, a 50-gallon drum garbage can. And Joy went to school when that happened and confronted the teacher. And she said, why didn't you do anything? And the teacher said, I didn't know what to do. And it's kind of like, well, if that were your kid in the garbage can, let's start there. But people right. don't think that way. She did nothing. Right. And there's another example of a meta-narrative where these kids were actually playing out this history. Um, uh, I would say not all of them unconsciously, but more or less unconsciously, collectively. So I like what you said. We powerful, powerful examples, guys. The, you know, the narrative there's also a, a, a narrative of mental health issues are signs of weakness. That mental health disease is not as serious as heart disease. That, um, that if you suffer um, psychologically, it's a sign of weakness, not a, uh, not a medical condition. Or you must be we crazy. You have a mental problem. Yeah, not stable. Uh, yeah. For long, maybe still today, it's harder to get insurance treatment for mental illness than it is for any other kind of illness, because the narrative is that mental illness truly isn't disease. Right. We are seeing an epidemic 
an absolute epidemic of mass shootings right now. What did we expect was going to happen when the world went into COVID isolation? Mental disease is going to explode. And we're seeing it happen. The rage and brokenness. And Liz, what you said about we have not prepared our society for this. Braden, what you said about our churches have not prepared. We haven't done the biblical work of learning how to love our neighbors. We haven't lived the biblical narrative of the uh, of the golden rule. And just, what we're seeing, just as I, I posted on uh, Facebook late last night, a um, story. Well, actually, a couple stories, but it pertains to this directly. So go ahead and 1958. Why don't you explain that, John? Because they're good stories. Did you read that one yet? You'll like it. Um, yes. yes. I um, entitled this particular one. I don't usually give titles to them, but I had a lot of prayer and I will say quite frankly that the last paragraph is basically uh, inspired, but the title of it, because I wanted to try to find a picture which conveyed what was happening in the stories. And the only thing that I could come up with was a field of black. So the picture on the post is black. And on the top of it, I wrote the outer um, the Outer Darkness, in all caps. And the short version of the story is, we must respect the Holy Spirit. We must love and respect one another. If we do not listen to Jesus' teachings, the consequence will be disastrous. And whether or not we want to be ready for this hard situation, we have to be prepared because there are things coming that most human beings are not prepared to deal with. And it's apropos to what Liz was talking about, but it's even much greater than that. And I would lump a whole lot of people I know into that category. Most people don't want to look at those things. We would rather pretend that the virus doesn't exist. Uh, we would rather argue about whether masks work. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Whether or not uh, we're going to get uh, vaccinated is a political statement uh, instead of a, uh, a, a reality statement. Earlier, you had brought up rage as well. The story, uh, the primary focus of the story from a personal standpoint is I address the consequences of my rage uh, directly and the resolution of that rage. So you said something earlier about rage, Eric. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's what brought to mind my post. Yeah. Well, just as every cop is a criminal and all the sinners saints. 
We all have that within us. We all have the ability to choose. And John, you and I have talked frequently over the years about the Jewish perspective on inclinations. Yes. That the, the biblical story does not have any original sin in it. It has original blessing, original gift. Uh, Paul, long after Jesus died, offers us his theology of, of a fall, but he does it metaphorically. I'm not sure he would even agree, remotely agree with how we've taken his writings and turned them into a declaration of original sin, that we all come into the world stained. The Jewish perspective, and it's Jews who wrote the Bible, so, uh, so we, we should pay close attention to their perspective, is that we are all born with equal inclinations, the evil inclination and the good inclination. And it's our choice whether to be a cop or a criminal, a sinner or a saint. Is that a, fair, a fairly accurate description, John? Absolutely. And I want to just throw out there, there are times when rage is appropriate. There are times um, when anger is appropriate, but it, I don't mean out of control rage. And, you know, one of the things that I did to help me with that was take Tai Chi because I learned a lot. Um, and because we are all um, I like to call them mudheads, that, but that might influence, that might offend some people. Um, let's just say children of Adam, which means earth or soil in the Hebrew. So because we are all that, we have this capacity. And the question is, does it master us or do we master it? Um, that is the evil inclination. The good inclination is we want to do good. That's, I think, a part of every human being somewhere inside. So some additional meta-narratives that we've grown up with, and Liz and Braden, see, Braden, when were you born? 87. 87, okay. So this, this quote came from 81, but I'm sure you remember Pat Robertson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the preacher. In 1981, he was asked, does the Bible specifically tell us what is going to happen in the future? His reply, it specifically, clearly, unequivocally says that Russia and other countries will enter into war with God, into war, and God will destroy Russia through earthquakes and volcanoes. So, I've never read the word Russia in the Bible. It's not I mean, narrative. <laughs> I'm just I'm just throwing that out there. I've never, I mean, I've I've read, I'm not gonna say that I've read the entire Bible, but I've heard heard and read most of it. Never heard of well, Russia being in there. Sorry. Apparently, Braden, apparently you uh you weren't paying close enough attention. I read the wrong Eric, Bible. Eric makes a huge point here, and I work in a very conservative community. And I would say somewhere around half of the people in my community actually believe something along those lines in terms of 
let's say, end time prophecy. And the power of that belief system is intense. Mm -hmm. the, the power of that belief system is has the has the power to destroy our environment, which is why environmental activism had to begin because there are far too many Christians who say that God is going to rapture us away so we can do whatever we want to to this earth because we're not going to be here all that much longer anyways. We can soil this earth all we want to because God's going to suck us up and carry us away. That's the same kind of thinking that Pat Robertson offers. In a in a, in a Bible that constantly speaks of the beauty of nature, constantly speaks of us seeing God through nature, how that theology, how that meta-narrative could have developed, uh, the only answer is selfishness. Because the people that are going to be raptured away is me. I'm not, I'm not the one. Braden and Liz, you may have, I'm, I'm certain you've heard this in our community um, or seen this on Facebook posts. People who are Christian pointing their fingers at, at other people saying, see, they're the children of the devil. Mm. And not so many words, right? Mm -hmm. See, those lefties, those liberals, they're children of the devil. They've been fooled. They've been fooled by Satan. They've got the marks of Satan on them. And what the about irony immigrants is, coming into our country? Like those yeah. the Satan, satanic immigrants, right? Yeah, that's is, what they are. Is, come and speak English, you because that's the language that that's we all English, speak. That's what I speak, so you better speak it because I don't want to learn to say hello. Sorry, but my family two generations ago spoke Swedish. I'm German. Right, right. So we point fingers, our narratives shape how we interact with all other people. Instead of living out of the narrative that God says over and over and over again, you shall welcome the immigrant with open arms because you once were a slave in a foreign country. Oh, not me, I'm white. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God, we all are. We're blessed. I've never been a yeah. slave to anything. Not true. I want to yeah. go back. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Eric, about the idea that we can trash the environment. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite lines in the book. I like hearing everybody else's favorite lines a lot, but one of my favorite lines <laughs> is in the very beginning when I talk about the chiasm in Revelation. And you have the kingdom of, or not the kingdom, um, the tabernacle is opened and blah, blah, blah. And then it says, and those who destroy the earth will be destroyed. Now, I want to ask you, why do people miss that sentence? That is pregnant with meaning. Now, from a Jewish perspective, it probably meant people who destroy the land of Israel. But I translated it in the book for my own purposes to represent all of the earth because it's insane the way we treat our environment. It's literally insane. 
all of creation groans in longing, waiting for the children of God to wake up. That is, that's pretty clear too. That's Romans chapter 8. Wow. Uh, all of creation is groaning, longing for us to wake up. To have our eyes open, to see God in the things that we are destroying. To see God in the people that we are destroying. Um, so, I, I, what I really wanted people to understand is that the Bible is an incredibly powerful library of books. And we form our life narratives. We have to form our life narratives on something. And we can build an incredibly beautiful, wonderful life if we focus on the narratives that Jesus offers to us, if we focus on the narratives that the Jewish people offer to us, or we can take what we want to believe and go look for proof of it in the Bible. And we're gonna be able to find it there because it's a library of books written over 2000 years by hundreds of people with lots of different perspectives. And if I want to find something that says God's going to trash the earth, well, I bet I could go find some Sodom and Gomorrah stories. <laughs> so what is what are the narrative? We have to be very careful about the narratives that we follow. And, and, it, and that care begins with recognizing that we are following narratives, that there isn't one truth. There are many truths. Um, Francois Léotard is a, is a French philosopher, and he is the one probably most responsible for coming up with the, uh, the definition of postmodern, and I forget who said this, but I just, as I, as I read, I take notes, and I, I should have been more careful about, um, sourcing this, but um, simplifying to the extreme. I, I think actually this is Leotard. This is, uh, I don't remember where I got it from, but it was somebody talking about Leotard. Simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodern as incredulity towards meta-narratives. The narrative function is losing its functions, its great heroes, its great dangers, its great voyages, its great goal. It's being dispersed in a cloud of narrative language where after the meta-narratives meta -narratives can legitimacy reside, he asks. Uh, so he is, he is lamenting the fact that these meta-narratives that guided society are disappearing into a cloud of micro-narratives, that everything is becoming subjective. Uh, it's, it's what I believe and what I individually want, and that society is no longer large groups of people, but micro groups of people that all have their own belief systems. And he, I don't know, I haven't studied Leotard in depth. I don't know if he was worried about that, concerned about that, or just identifying it, but he hit the nail on the head. That is, you know, that, that mm -hmm. is a major change in society. Um, but at the same time, the modern world hasn't been replaced by the postmodern world. They're kind of woven together. And we talk about the evangelical church. Evangelical church is very modern. It's the core of modernism in which we can find the one truth. 
In fact, they say, we found the one truth and we are it. And if you don't follow our truth, you're going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. um, that's what the non-denoms do. That is a, that's a non-denom. Southern, Southern Baptist is non-denom. Uh, it's just in a different name. They took the name Southern Baptist out so they could attract young people who don't like uh, Baptist denomination language. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but that is a that is a meta narrative that we have the one truth. And Leotard is saying, nonsense, folks. We live in this world that's defined, it's no longer defined by meta narratives, it's defined by micro narratives. And we better get used to it. And the real danger is, is not recognizing that we are shaped by all of these forces, not recognizing that we are shaped by narratives and thinking that, um, thinking that what we believe is the only way to believe. When we believe what we believe because where we were born and how we were raised and the influences we had for John, the Vietnam War, as he said, is a powerful influence. The, the watching the assassinations of the Kennedys was a powerful influence. Um, Braden, you are influenced powerfully because you grew up on a farm. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And uh, and you recognize that and you notice that, um, but it really, it breaks my heart. One of the things that breaks my heart is all of the people who think that patriotism, blind patriotism, is the only way to be. Uh, I think Bruce Springsteen nailed it. Today's, and he said this 25 years ago, in today's day and age, 30 years ago, my God, I'm getting old. Uh, <laughs> 1985, he said, in today's day and age, um, blind faith in your political leaders will get you killed. And he hit the nail on the head. Um, Mm -hmm. Lightly going through life thinking that we have all the answers is a way is is one of the reasons why this world is in so much pain. And like John said, there is much more pain coming. If just think about pandemics, we can't control this pandemic. What's going to happen when the next one comes? Um, we we got a lot of work to do in finding ways to build communities that are healthy and supportive and caregiving instead of building more tribes. And that is one of the grand themes of the Bible as well. Tribalism is a powerful narrative in the Bible. And tribalism is destructive, period. There's really nothing good about tribalism. It's an old way of life. Uh, it's a broken way of life in which my tribe is, is the most important tribe and everybody else's tribe deserves to die. Uh, so we get the good and the bad. We get we get it unfiltered in the Bible. So, ah, and, and dangerously close to getting on a soapbox and offering a sermon there. So, I well, then I'll... let me let me ask you a question, Eric. Uh, we were asked to give our, you know, uh, themes, if you will, early in yeah. life. What were yours? Yeah. What were yours? Um, well, I, I interspersed some of those uh, in my responses. The uh, uh, 
he who dies with the most toys win uh, was a powerful narrative when I was a child. That success comes from what you acquire. Uh, when my grandma said that she thought it would be good for me to be a pastor, I thought that was like the like the, the most stupid thing I'd ever heard because losers become pastors. Um, <laughs> I want to jump in and give you a second to think on what the next one might be and say that you are not the only one that that has that narrative of losers become pastors uh, that wasn't just a you thing that's right that's a thing that for i don't know if i'm still fighting it or not but i know that for a fact there was a point in my life where i had people telling me you should be a pastor and my immediate response in my gut was just am i that uncool am i that like really but now th just know that that's not the question that I'm asking. And Eric, I don't think that you're uncool. <laughs> it takes, but it takes, these conversations are so important. And I hope we have people that enjoy participating in these through this podcast because they, it opens our eyes to new ways of thinking and new ways of seeing and we grow. And as we grow, nothing can ever be the same. And our eyes are opened to new ways of seeing how do I know Jesus is real and alive and, and with me? Because I get to see new things all the time and I can no longer see the world the way I used to. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when you have a community of people like the four of us, just for example, that you can talk freely about these ideas and these thoughts and then dig into what's happened and write a book. <laughs> like John, right. and then share it and keep doing life together yeah yeah i'm and learning it, that with these conversations being vulnerable is just getting less and less scary it's less and less scary because there's somebody else out probably in our little group that has already that i'm not alone and isn't that what you just said what the kingdom is about yes because in that vulnerable space, one can actually have trust. And I think that one person being vulnerable can actually engender all of the fearful people in the room to let their guard down and just be themselves instead of everybody wearing their masks. We talked about this before, wearing their, you know, power jewels and the power do don't care what gender you happen to identify with it's the same they're hiding behind it right i love meeting with you guys i'm so grateful for you eric for having suggested this because like i've said to you two Braden and liz eric and i have been doing this for 10 years or more when did you start your pastoral studies 2011 so 10 years. And, you know, one of my favorite discussions with Eric, I love this. I'm hoping you're going to just allow me to just be free here. Eric and I were talking and he said, the book of Revelation scares me. And I said, that's because you do not understand it. The book of Revelation is cool. And that was actually at the very beginning of that discussion. Yeah. And it has 
escalated. I have learned so much in the past 10 years. So much. Jeez. Well, I'm going to be hanging around with you guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, 10 years from now, we will yeah. do a recap in which we talk yeah. about how much we've changed, grown, and learned. We'll rewatch. We'll rewatch these podcasts, and then we'll record our like. We'll do a trans. Our, no, it's a hologram. We'll do our hologram podcast. Okay, <laughs> uh, hologram. There we are. Yeah. All right. So with that, let's wrap this one up. We're at about an hour, and I will say uh, goodbye to the audience. Uh, we all love you, and we all love each other, and we'll see you again next time. Love you guys. Hey, thanks again for listening to A Questioning Faith. This week we were talking about meta-narratives that form our life and the stories that they help us to tell about ourselves. Uh, some of those stories have some really wonderful traits and some may have shaped us in some unexamined ways that are really helpful for us to, to relook at. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the Bible as art again. Um, this time, we're going to be talking about it from a form of still art. Um, so, join in. We hope you like and share this episode with anybody that you think might enjoy it, and we hope you've enjoyed it as well. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>